Hi, church. I'm Pastor Michael. Before I go into the sermon today, I want to um, reflect on and, and um, offer some comments on the terrible events of these past several weeks. Um, by now, all of you have heard about the, the tragic deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd. And uh, if you've seen the video of uh, George Floyd's death, it is very painful. It is almost unbearable to watch. And what has happened is there have been protests and uh, a number of them have um, become riots. And uh, just just this morning, I saw that uh, a state of emergency has been declared in Los Angeles because the city is burning. And uh, it reminds me of my painful memories of the LA riots when I was a, a sophomore in high school. This is in 92. And so what can we say about this? What words can meet this moment? And I believe that words are inadequate. Words are inadequate. And uh, the elders and I, we have been uh, discussing this and talking about this. And uh, we would like to, um, we like to do two things. The first thing is um, we want to issue a call to the church for prayer and reflection and lament. The Bible commands us to weep with those who weep. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. And so um, our elder Jeff Murray, he's going to lead a Monday morning prayer, and I'm going to lead a Thursday evening prayer. And in my prayer... In my prayer time, we're going to um, have a conversation. We're going to talk about what has been going on. We're going to look at what scripture has to say. And then we're going to pray. We're going to cry out to God. We're going to weep and lament together. But the second thing, and this is, we want to do a long-term sustained engagement. Because I think the easy thing is to make a quick statement and, um, and then forget you know, and I think social media, uh, to some extent, is a format that sort of lends itself to that kind of short-termism. But I believe the answer, and I believe this is the deepest answer, and I believe this with all my heart, the deepest answer is that we are going to preach, and we are going to live out the gospel. I believe that is the answer to preach and to live out the gospel because the Bible has so much to say about racial exclusion, about racial injustice. And and if you read, you know, the Old Testament and the prophets, you know, we need to remember that the prophets was the source text of the civil rights movement in the 50s and the 60s. And if you look at the New Testament, uh, the Roman Empire was just ripped apart with ethnic strife, ethnic hatred and mistrust and suspicion. And into that world, the gospel came. And, and the gospel does several things. Number one, the gospel tells us that every human being is made in the image of God. Every human being. And therefore, this is the basis of universal human dignity and value and worth. And therefore, to mistreat any human being, to, to exclude any human being, is reprehensible and it's an insult to our Creator. And then the second thing is that the gospel gives us this incredible vision of the new heavens and the new earth, of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping 
God. And so the church is this ingathering of all nations, all peoples, right? And, and the New Testament talks about this all the time. Jews and Gentiles, people who were just at each other's throats in the ancient Mediterranean world, living together in peace and harmony and, and reconciliation in the church. And so we are to live this out embodied, embodied community. And I believe that is the deepest hope, that is the deepest answer, because I believe that changes in laws and changes in policy alone, while, there, while that still needs to happen and that still needs to continue, is not enough. It's not enough. Because it has now been 60 years since the civil rights movement. It's you know, it's been almost 60 years since all of the civil rights legislation, you know, Fair Housing Act, the, the Voting Rights Act, the desegregation of schools. It's been 60 years since the laws have changed and we still see vast inequalities, inequities, racial inequities in education, in employment, in, uh, in incarceration rates, in health outcomes. So how do we explain that? And the answer is, it's the problem of the human heart. And what do you do with the problem of the human heart? And the answer, the answer is the gospel. I think the gospel ministry alone can address this because it gives, it tells us that we are all sinners saved by grace. And so it tells us that the problem is not the evil out there. It's not evil people and we are the righteous people. But the problem is all of us. It's, it's our human hearts that exclude, that look down on others. And then the gospel gives us enormous resources for reconciliation, for forgiveness, for compassion. We should have compassion for those who are hurting. I have deep compassion for the black community, for the generations of injustice and exclusion that they have experienced in the United States. I have deep compassion for police officers, many, many of whom are serving with their full heart and I think, you know, there's been so many accusations and we need to remember that they're human beings too. And it's been incredibly painful for them and for their families. And so we can have deep compassion for, for, for people and deep empathy. And so I think that is the hope, is that we need to be the church all the more. We need to be this multi-ethnic church where black and brown, Asian and white can live together in harmony, in love, in, in, in deep empathy, we could deeply understand one another and show a world of peace and unity. And so that's, that is the preliminary um, answer, I think, and we need to continue, continue this gospel ministry. Okay, so with that said, um, we're going to continue our sermon series on the attributes of God. And I can't think of a more relevant topic than in these turbulent times. And so in the first sermon, we looked at the attribute that God is incomprehensible. He is incomprehensible. And what that means is that though we can know him truly, we can have true knowledge of God. We can never have full knowledge of him. We can never understand him in all of his fullness. The biblical language here is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. It says, his understanding is unsearchable. It is unsearchable. We will never come to the end of who God is. He will be always infinitely beyond us, and therefore he will be always a mystery. He will always be hidden from our sight forever. 
The second thing uh, that we looked at is that God is self-sufficient. And the word we looked at is the aseity of God. Aseity means God from himself. And so his happiness is from himself. His existence is from himself. Jesus says in John 6, 26, God has life in himself. And so God has this self-generating, self-perpetuating life. And therefore, he doesn't need us. He doesn't depend on us. There's no exchange between us and God. There's no commerce between God and humanity. There's nothing that we can give to him that he does not already have. And therefore, we relate to him only by the basis of grace. Everything that we receive from God is a gift, therefore never a wage. Never a wage. The third um, attribute that we're going to look at today is that God is unchanging. He is unchanging. And um, the big theological word for this is that he is immutable. And uh, the word mutate there means to change. And so his immutableness means that he cannot, he will not change. Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. And therefore God is absolutely consistent with himself forever. That is who God is. He is incomprehensible. He is self-sufficient. He is unchanging. And I want you to notice that in all of these attributes, God is utterly unique. He is utterly unique. He is not like us. He is not some bigger, greater version of us like the gods of Greek mythology or like the Avengers. We can't put God on some scale and start with humanity on the bottom and sort of work our way up to the ladder until we get to God. But God is incomparable. He cannot be scaled. He is the creator. We are his creation. And the gap between the creator and the creation is an infinite gap. It is an unbridgeable gap. And when we contemplate, when we behold this vast infinite chasm between us and God, we have this dizzying sense of vertigo. And we can say, therefore, with the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 10, verse 6, there is none like you. There is none like you, O Lord, for you are great and great is your name and might. So today we're going to look at this really incredible attribute that God is unchanging. And I want you to know it is an astonishing attribute. It is a beautiful attribute. It is what makes it is what makes God glorious. And so here's my outline. I have three points. Number one, I'm gonna I, I want us to see I want you to see that God, number one, does not change, okay? But he is always the same. Number two, I want to show you that God does change. And we're going to look at the biblical language that he regrets, that he relents, what's going on there. And then finally, we're going to look at the immutability of God and what that tells us about the gospel. So let's begin. God does not change. And the text here is Psalm 102, and it's going to be displayed for you in the um, the screen. Let me read it for you. Verses 25 to 27. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. 
And so the imagery here is, you know, really stunning. The psalmist says, you know, think about the geological structures of the earth. You know, think about the continental masses. Think about the tectonic plates underneath us. Or look up into the heavens, right? Think about the constellation of the stars. Think about the orbits of the planets. They seem so big, so permanent and unchanging. But actually, when you compare them to God, the psalmist says they are like garments, You know, one of the things that I really dislike is buying new clothes, and uh, I find it to be a burdensome chore. And so when you go into my closet, I literally have clothes. I have t-shirts that I've worn still since college. Some of them are my favorite shirts, and I wear them all the time. But do you know what happens? Very sad, over time, there begins to be sections that are, you know, threadbare. And then what happens, for those of you who, you know, buy new clothes all the time, what happens then is a little hole will appear and then it'll get bigger and then soon the clothing, the shirt will fall apart and then you have to throw it away because that's what garments are. They are thin patches of fabric. But the psalmist says, look at the mountains. They seem so immovable, right? Have you ever been to the Rockies? Look at the starry hosts. They are like clothing that disintegrates with time. But God remains. He is the same forever. Ever constant. Ever unchanging. And you know, a lot of people, when they look at that, they say, I don't know if I like that about God. It makes him seem rather boring and uninteresting. He lacks dynamism. And perhaps some of you have an image of God sort of, you know, frozen in amber, you know, forever motionless. Or the image that I think of is, you know, think about a ghost town that has been completely abandoned. Everything is perfectly still. Nothing changes. There's no activities because there's no life. There's no people. Is God like that? Is he like a ghost town? And the answer is no. And here we have to remember once again the doctrine of the Trinity. God is one divine being and three eternally existent, fully alive persons. And therefore, the better analogy is that God is like this this bustling marketplace full of life, full of vitality and activity. And therefore, because God is like that, he is constant. He is constant, not because he doesn't ever move, but he is constant because of the infinite motion in the life of the Trinity, because there is infinite love, infinite power, infinite wisdom. And he is all of these things to the uttermost, to the uttermost. And therefore, he cannot change. He cannot gain from experiences. He cannot learn new things. He cannot become more loving because from all of eternity, he is the most perfect being. And therefore, as the most perfect being, any change, no matter how minute, would diminish him, would make him less than perfect. But because he is perfect, he is constant He is faithfully himself forevermore. Hebrews 13 verse 8 says, He is the same yesterday, today, forever. But I want you to know that the world is not like that. You know, think about your jobs. The sad reality is that there is no job security. 
There is no such thing as lifetime employment. Companies go bankrupt all the time. And therefore, you always have to keep your resume up to date. You always have to be networking and, you know, keeping your options open, right? You can never stop hustling. You can never rest. You can never really just settle down and say, this job will always be there for me because that's naive. And so the economy, it's always changing and people are changing. I, when I was in high school, I had a really good friend, my best friend, his name was William. And you know, we would talk all the time, sometimes late into the night, I remember, we would talk about, you know, theology, we would talk about, you know, our plans and prospects of going to college, we would talk about movies, we would talk about, you know, sometimes girls and dating. And we had this really vibrant, beautiful friendship. And then what happened is that we ended up going to different colleges. I went to up here to the Bay Area. He stayed down in Los Angeles. And then over time, we lost contact. And then one day, I remember this so vividly, I was living in Boston. And then just out of the blue, he calls me up. 10 years had passed since we last talked. And he said, Michael, you know, it's been forever. Let's catch up. And there was so much to catch up. You know, so much had changed. He and I were both married by then. You know, he was living in uh, Colorado. I was living in Boston. He was working in banking. I was, you know, trying to become a pastor. And the whole time, and I remember this so vividly, I was in my room. I was looking down on this cherry blossom tree. And the whole time, it was this awkward conversation because we soon discovered that we didn't have the same interests anymore. We didn't have the same passions. We didn't have the same life experiences, you know, and, and the friendship was lost. You know, everything in this life is in constant flux. Neighborhoods change. Have you ever been to your childhood home? It's not the same anymore. Institutions change. You know, every institution has this golden era. And then you'll talk to the old timers and they'll say, I remember the good old days, the way things used to be, but it's not like that anymore. And, and things are decaying, things are falling apart. Don't you feel it? Everything in this world, everything in this world is falling apart. Don't you feel it in your bones? And therefore, nothing is secure. Nothing is solid that you can build your life upon. But not so with God. God is the one fixed point in all of the universe. He is the true north in a world of chaos and turmoil. In the book of Psalms, do you know what image, um, what metaphor is evoked the most often to describe God. Do you know what it is? It is that God, he is our rock. It comes up over 30 times in the book of Psalms. So you have Psalm 62, verse 6. Listen to this. The Lord is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress and I shall not be shaken. It's, it's an amazing imagery. You know that psalm was written by David. David wrote about half of the psalms and the majority of the images of the rock, God as the rock, come from David. Do you know why? Because for much of David's life, he was a fugitive on the run. 
His life was constantly in peril. Day to day, he didn't know what was going to happen to him. And therefore, there was no one that he could rely on. There were no allies that he could trust. There's a really poignant story in 1 Samuel chapter 23. It's not a really well-known story, but it's a really sad and beautiful story. And what happens is that the Israelite city of Cala, they're under attack. They're besieged by the Philistines and they're about to be overwhelmed. They're about to be enslaved. And so they issue a call for help to their fellow countrymen, but nobody comes. No one comes. But David and his men, they hear the call. And so then they come and they valiantly fight off the Philistines and they rescue the city. And then what happens is King Saul, he finds out that David is at Cala. And then he sends messengers to the elders of Cala, instructing them to hold David, to arrest David. And then when he comes, in exchange for David, he would give them this great reward. And David, he finds out about this. And so he has to flee for his life. He has to escape out into the wilderness and hide once again as a fugitive. I want you to think about that. Think about just deep level of betrayal and the treachery of that. These are people that David was willing to lay down his life to save. And in a heartbeat, they would turn him over to Saul. Not all of us are fugitives running away from a tyrannical king. But we all live in a world like David, where relationships so often have a price tag. Where loyalties are negotiable. Where people will make promises to your face and then break them. We live in a world of shifting shadows, where people are fickle and unreliable. But David says, our God, our God, he is a rock. And all the drama and all the melodrama of this world, they're like swirling waters crashing down on this rock. But the rock stands, the rock holds fast amidst the rushing waters and it doesn't budge an inch. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Don't build your house on shifting sands because when the storm comes, your house will collapse. He says, but instead, build your house on the rock. And no matter how much the storm rages, your house will endure. And that rock is God. James 1, chapter uh, verse 17 says this, every good and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, listen to this, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is absolutely consistent. He is absolutely faithful in who he is. He never changes his mind. He never shifts his loyalties. He never sticks his finger in the air to see which way the winds are blowing. But his goodness and his character are constant, always and forever. This is our God. Praise the Lord, O my soul. His greatness is unsearchable. It's unsearchable. One of my favorite lines from the Chronicles of Narnia comes from the second book, uh, Prince Caspian, which, to be honest with you, is, I think, my least favorite of the Narnia books. 
but it does have one of my favorite, favorite lines. And there's this wonderful scene where Lucy once again meets Aslan. Aslan is the Christ figure of the story. She hasn't seen him since the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it's been one year. One year has passed by. And when she sees Aslan, she's amazed. And she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan replies, that is because you are older, little one. And Lucy, puzzled, says, not because you are? And Aslan says, listen to this, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. I love that. Every year that you grow, you will find me bigger. God does not grow. God does not get bigger. But when we study the scriptures, when we meditate on the doctrine of God, we find year by year, he will become bigger in our estimation. He will become greater in our sense of wonder. So that's the first point. God does not change. The second point is God does change. And here we're going to look at two passages of God um, regretting and God relenting. And actually, there are dozens of passages that employ this language. And we're just going to focus on two stories. And these are two richly complex stories. We could spend the entire sermon on just each story. But we're going to have to treat this very briefly. So here it goes. The first story is the story of King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And so what happens is God commands King Saul to go and to destroy the Amalekites who were a Canaanite nation. He was to destroy them completely as an act of God's judgment and wrath. But what happens is uh, Saul disobeys. And the text tells us he keeps the best, the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves. And, And what he does then is he turns what should have been this great moral crusade of justice into this small petty thing of personal gain. And then God comes to the prophet Samuel. And in verse 11 of chapter 15, this is what this is what God says. Listen to this. He says, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And so God says, you know, I, I, I regret making Saul king. And, and, and it seems like God thought that Saul was going to be a good king, but he ended up being a bad king. And so God is sort of full of regret. He realizes that he has made this huge mistake. And so he says, okay, I, I can salvage this. I'm going to switch to plan B. Plan B is I'm going to make David king. And so it sounds like this sort of emotional, impulsive decision that God makes in the moment. Is that what is going on? And the answer is no. This is what biblical scholars call an anthropomorphism. So an anthropomorphism is when you use a human characteristic, a human uh, feature to describe God. And we see anthropomorphisms all the time in the Bible. So for example, the Bible will often talk about the hand of the Lord. Now we know God doesn't have a physical hand. He is a spirit. But the hand of the Lord is a figurative way to describe the power of God, God's working in this world, so that we can understand. And in theology, this is called accommodated language. It's using human expressions, human emotions, so that we who are creatures can understand 
an incomprehensible God. And we know that this is, in fact, what is going on, accommodated language, because in verse 29 of the same chapter, same story, by the way, right? The prophet Samuel goes to King Saul, and this is what he says. Listen, the glory of Israel does not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Now, in case you're wondering, it's the same Hebrew word in verse 11 and in verse 20 and verse 29. It's the Hebrew word naham, right? And so what is going on in verse 11? God has regrets. In verse 29, God cannot have regrets. So what is going on? And the answer is that God does not regret in the way human beings regret. When human beings regret, it's because we're, we're, we're limited, right? We, we, don't, we don't see the, all the possibility laid out before us, or it's because, you know, we're so fickle. Today, we make a decision. Tomorrow, we regret that decision. But God does regret in the sense that he feels deep sorrow. And we know that is the intended meaning because you just have to look at, at Samuel. Because Samuel, remember, is a prophet of God. And as a prophet, he represents God to us. And in the same verse, in verse 11, where it says that God regretted Saul as king, Samuel, it says that Samuel stays up the whole night because he's so distraught at what has happened. He's so, he's so emotional. He's so sad. He's so angry that he can't sleep the whole night. And it's a picture of the heart of God. And we know that this is what is going on. Because if you go down to verse 35, again, same chapter, same story. This is the concluding verse. In verse 35, it says, Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So do you see they're they're in parallel construction. And so God does not change his mind with Saul. It was always in the plan of God that he should choose Saul as king. And remember, God gave the, the people the king that they wanted because he looked the part, right? In the language of today, he looked presidential. He was heads and shoulders taller than everyone, but that it was also in the plan of God that Saul should fail and that in his place, David would be the rightful king, a man after God's own heart. That was the plan. And what is amazing in this story is that even though this was in the eternal plan of God, nevertheless, God weeps. He weeps for Saul's sin. It's an incredible picture of God. God will not insulate himself. He will not protect himself from the emotional pain of Saul's rebellion. This is who God is. The second story is the story of Jonah and Nineveh in Jonah chapter 3. And what happens is God sends Jonah to the city of Nineveh to preach judgment against it for their wickedness. And then what happens is the city repents and the king and all the people, they dress in sackcloth, they fast. And then the text says they turned away from their evil and from their violence. And then in response, verse 10, chapter 3, this is what it says. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, listen, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. 
And the word relent here means to soften up. It means to have a change of heart. It means to have a change of mind. And, you know, this does not sound like an immutable God, a relenting God. He sounds very mutable. God was going to destroy Nineveh. And then the people, when they see this, they repent, they truly repent, and then God relents. He changes his plan. What is going on here? And again, we're using human language so that we can understand the actions of God. And the key is to realize that God changes what he does, not because he just arbitrarily changes his mind, but precisely because of the consistency of his character. This is why Jonah refused to go to Nineveh in the first place, because he knew the consistency of God. He knew that God is always gracious to repentant sinners, and he wanted Nineveh to burn. He was so furious at the generations of injustice in Nineveh, and so he wanted judgment to rain down, but God relents from that judgment. And in chapter 4, verse 2, it's very important, listen to this, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew, I knew that you are a gracious God, full of mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Right? Jonah's like, yeah, right? Abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. It is because God is immutable. It is because he is unchanging in his mercy that he relented from the disaster of destroying Nineveh. This is who God is from all of eternity. He does not change. It was always his plan. It was always his intention that he should save Nineveh. His actions change in time in accordance with how we respond to God, whether we will repent or whether we will hold on to our sins. But it is his will, but his will from all of eternity remains the same. And so do you see the difference, right, between God's actions in time and God's eternal will? And this gets to the question of predestination and the doctrine of election. And we're going to look at that in the next sermon when we look at God's eternality. Third and final point, we're going to look at immutability and what does that tell us about the gospel. And I want you to know, listen to me, there is no gospel, there is no gospel without the immutability of God. Because if God can change his mind, if God should ever grow tired of us, if he should ever become exasperated with us, then we are not safe with him. If God's declaration that we are righteous in Christ can ever be amended at some future date, then that means we're not truly saved by grace, but our standing with God depends on our continued good behavior. But because God is eternally unchanging, his saving decrees from eternity can never be overturned. Romans 8.39, Paul says, Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. But because God is our rock, we are secure. Isaiah 54, verse 10, listen to this. For the mountains 
Think about how massive and immovable they seem. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, says the Lord. God is steadfast. I love that word. God is steadfast. His love is steadfast. His mercy is steadfast. His compassions, they are steadfast. He will never move an inch. He will always remain the same. Let me say one final thing and then we're done. I want you to know that while God's immutability is a deep comfort for believers, it is an absolute terror for unbelievers. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should change his mind. And therefore, his judgment is forever. And therefore, his wrath is forever. And therefore, because of the immutability of God, hell is forever. I want you to listen to Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 18. Therefore, says the Lord, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. God will never weaken in his resolve. He will never waver. He will never soften up. But he will forever hate and be opposed to sin and evil. He will never tolerate injustice. He will never turn a blind eye to to human evil. And because, because if he should relent, if he should ever relax his standards in any way, then he would no longer be holy and he would be complicit in evil. So what does that mean, therefore? You know, I've been meditating on this all this week, and and I think the doctrine of the immutability of God is such a deep, profound thing, and, and the immensity of it, we will never be able to wrap our minds around. Because it means that all of us who are in Christ, we are eternally secure. We will forever be in his arms, Jesus in John 10, 28 says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. He will forever hold us. He will forever keep us near his breast. But it also means, it also means, listen, that repentance is for this life alone. Repentance is for this life alone. And therefore, do not be cavalier with the mercy of God. Do not presume upon his compassion Do not say, later, later in life, I shall become a Christian. Later on in my deathbed, I will put these matters to serious consideration. How do you know? Now, now is the time for repentance. Joel 2.12 says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me. Return to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and mourning, and I will heal you, and I will bind up your wounds. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, what a great and beautiful 
and terrible thing is your eternal immutability. It is too great a thing for finite creatures to contemplate. And as we meditate on this doctrine, we remember that you sit above the circle of the earth and all the world are like grasshoppers before you. And while we are perturbed and distressed and and running around, we don't know what to do about these tumultuous times, you, you reign and you are in absolute control. Lord, we cry out to you as your people. Look upon us with compassion and love which you set upon us from eternity. Heal this land. Lord, there's so much pain and rage and suffering going on. And we have this terrible legacy as a nation of slavery and it's still unresolved and and it's still an open wound in our nation. Please bring deep reconciliation and justice and forgiveness and mutual understanding. And ultimately, we long for your kingdom to come. Come, Lord Jesus. Make all things right. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.